This podcast is supported by Verizon. In the South, big decisions were often made in one location, the front porch. In her new podcast, Rose Stuckey Kirk, Verizon's chief CSR officer, invites you to join her and leading changemakers for powerful conversations on social justice, climate, communities, economy, equality, and more. Stream On the Porch with Rose Stuckey Kirk and Rose's first episode with civil rights icon Ruby Bridges, where you listen to podcasts. It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. While the United States has the world's deepest and most liquid capital markets and the most billionaires in the world, we also have historic levels of wealth inequality and racial disparity. Beth Ann Bovino is the chief U.S. economist at S&P Global Ratings. It's natural, she says, for the distribution of wealth and income to be across a spectrum in a market economy. But what we're seeing now is a widening gap. However, when it gets much wider, we see that the majority of participants in the United States are left behind. That means we lose their productivity, they lose their income and wealth, and we end up seeing it kind of a spiraling down. Today, how will we create more wealth for everyone? Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. The global COVID-19 pandemic has worsened inequality. Oxfam International found that while billionaire fortunes returned to pre-pandemic highs in just nine months, a recovery for the world's poorest people could take over a decade. In the U.S., wealthier people have kept their jobs and decreased their expenses as they transitioned to working from home, while others have either gone to work on the front lines or lost their jobs altogether. What caused this widening gap, and can it be reversed? Beth Ann Bovino joins Morningstar CEO Kunal Kapoor and Children's Defense Fund President Starsky Wilson for a conversation about how to build wealth equity and create a more prosperous future for everyone. The Atlantic's Jillian White interviews them. Their conversation was held in June. Here's White. So after the year that we have had with the pandemic, I think there's no one who is watching the news or paying attention closely who didn't hear the words wealth inequality and hear about the gap widening. And there were so many ways in which that happened. There was the gap that existed normally, but then there was the gap between those who were able to keep their jobs and actually decrease their expenses thanks to staying at home. And then there were the people who were going into work continually um, and putting their lives on the line to do so. And then there were all the people who lost their jobs. Um, So it feels like an even more poignant moment to have this conversation right now as we're hopefully coming out of the pandemic and returning to life as normal. So Bethann, I want to start with you. Why is wealth inequality such a big thing that's on your mind as an economist? Sure. Um, so why don't I uh, first set the, set the stage? So I'm, a, I'm a, the U.S. chief economist at S&P Global. I focus on, I work in the financial district. So it seems odd that somebody who works in the financial district would be focused on something like income and wealth inequality. But to put it in perspective, I look at long-term trends. I look at productivity and trend growth for the United States. And what we've seen over the last 10 to 15 years is a, a, a very sharp decline in both, meaning that trend growth in the United, United States 20 years ago, used to be close to 3% in growth. Now it's under 2%, and it's estimated to slow down even further going out 10 or 15 years. Um, How does that fall into um, income and wealth inequality? Now, first, I want to give you another point in terms of income and wealth inequality. 
it's a natural part of a market economy to have distrib- uh, a, basically a, a ga- or a, a, a distribution of income and wealth across the spectrum. That makes us work harder. That makes us invest in ourselves and our people and our children in order to in order to have a better life. However, when it gets much wider is what and what we have and what Jillian has 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 indicated. When it gets much wider, we see that the majority of participants in the United States are left behind. That means we lose their productivity. They lose their income and wealth, and and we end up seeing a kind of a spiraling down. I've also then looked at the question of race, because it's it, what we've also found is that income and wealth inequality is very much tied to race and color. And, and, color. and what we have found is that in that environment, household, um, if you look at household income by, by race, you'd see that black households have 25% less than white households in terms of income, and by wealth, the average white household in the United States in 2016, according to a Brookings Institution report, it's over 10 times greater than a black household. So how do we change the gap? Starsky, I, wanna, I want you to hone in. In your work, you're seeing the actual impact of this on families. And you know, as a reporter, this was something that I used to run into a lot. There's kind of the big up here economic idea. There's the numbers. Um, and there's thinking about this in the macro level. And then there's what it actually means to families, what it means day to day as they're trying to buy groceries, as they're trying to put their kids through school. So can you talk a little bit about what you see in your work as this gap widens? Yeah, sure. And and this is a really important point um, about this moment of transition in the context of uh, 2020 as well. Um, There's 74 million children in America. While we were paying attention to the pandemic, to the protests, to the presidential election of last year, um, for the first time in American history, a shift happened. The majority of those 74 children are children of color. When we speak of children in America, when we speak of rising generations, when we speak of the future, we're talking about black and brown children and families in America. Well, when we talk about income and wealth inequality, it's helpful to know that of the one in seven children who live in poverty in America, 71% of them are black or brown. So on a macro level, we're seeing that wealth and income inequality impact America's future, and we see it reflected in America's children. We have come to a point of intersection between child well-being, between inequities broadly as we see them economically, and the matter and conversation of racial justice. We come to this conversation that we're having today. And so we begin to see the impacts on what families can provide uh, for their children. Uh, Will they have the resources to buy the groceries that they need this month is a question. Uh, Will mom have, will she even apply for the job that will allow the family to get what they need? Will the children have access to the educational opportunities uh, that come to them by virtue of their zip code? Because this is how we fund schools. These are the matters that come up every day around kitchen tables. And I frankly don't think that we should be talking about things in policy in D.C. uh, or we should be talking about things uh, and advocating for them at the Children's Defense Fund if they don't start in a problem around the kitchen table from some mother or grandmother uh, and increasingly black and brown mamas and grandmamas. Um, And I say that finally because I say this. The importance of your work is that the majority of children who live in poverty also grow up up in households cared for by their mothers. 
most significant indicator of child well-being is you look at the nucleus that is around a child, the level of education of mama. Um, dads, granddads, you're still really important. <laughs> but these are critical factors. And I think about mama in this way, and this is why I really appreciate this work. Uh, as we talk about racial disparities, what we know about black women is that they won't apply for a job if it looks like they don't meet 100% of the qualifications. I say this to open up a conversation we'll get into later. What are the things that we can do mm -hmm. in order to help close the gap? And one of them is being very intentional about how we write job postings and job descriptions to invite candidates to apply who you know can do the job, but we also know have been historically uh, left out and have had to wrestle with structural barriers to things like higher education. Um, they can do the work just as hard. I, you know, I, just, I should say this here. It's the last thing I'll say. There, there are really smart black people. <laughs> may, I, may I just jump in really quick? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Starsky, that's uh, very, very enlightening. And I did want to, I did want to add a couple of points. Um, some of the study, some of the analysis that I found that me, myself and my co co um, Mike, the co-author, our co-author had done as well, is that what we found um, looking at uh, black and white women, college-educated black and white female professionals, we found that in 2019, there was a gap of, of close to $13,000 in annual income wages between a black professional woman and a white professional women, woman with a college degree. We adjusted for education for, you know, um, we adjusted for the quality of education and there still was a close, an over $7,000 gap. That kind of brings to the question of what you mentioned, which is called an affinity bias, meaning that it's whether conscious or, or conscious, conscious or otherwise, people have a bias that we want to be with people we're similar to. We have demographics or characteristics. We feel comfortable with them. And so that then also then can feed into a bias in terms of who you hire, ultimately a cause and an issue going forward. And we're going to get to the conversation around solutions. First, Kanal, I want to bring you in and I want to talk a little bit about investments and the gap that we see there when we think about assets. Because we know that Having assets, having assets that are growing, accumulating more is the real way that you build that foundation of wealth. And we know that some of the same groups of people that we're talking about who are lacking in earnings and income are also lacking in assets. So can you lay the foundation for us about what that asset gap looks like? This is a very significant um, issue. And actually, if I was to ask everyone in this room whether they had access to the financial markets or participated in the financial markets, I bet if I asked you all to raise your hands, if you did, everyone in this room probably would raise their hands. And I think what has been demonstrated so far is if you went to different settings with different groups of people, the answer could be quite different. And there's a lot to unpack as to why that gap exists, why the access uh, exists, but there are some fairly simple things um, that begin, I think, early in life that we will get into and talk about that we'll need um, correcting. But, but a simple thing to kind of reiterate, we did some work with the Aspen Institute looking into uh, how much the gap had widened uh, during the pandemic. And it is very significant exactly because of what you posited, that 
Uh, many people who have access to markets are feeling even better off than they did prior to when the pandemic hit. And those who don't are struggling uh, even more. And so you sort of start unpacking that. And having been in financial services, um, you know, early in my life, I kind of had a bug to sort of have an interest in investing. And I made some horrible investments, but <laughs> my dad let me do them. And the point was the bug happened and I had access to it. And that's not the case for a lot of people. And I think one of the mistakes that has historically been made in financial services is when we go to solve this problem, we begin with the notion that everyone A is interested in participating in the markets, or B, that they actually have the knowledge to participate in the markets. And the answer to those questions is often it's not the case. And so one of the things we should talk about is access as we go through this conversation. But the other thing that I think is really important here is a lot of people have jumped to the conclusion, especially in Western governments, um, where retirement savings has increasingly been privatized, that everyone is ready to invest and everyone wants to be an investor. And we've skipped the step of thinking about how people can be savers. Because you can't be a successful investor if you're not a successful saver, right? And I think people forget the simple laws of things like compounding and things like that. You can be the world's greatest stock picker, but if your portfolio is $1,000, it's not going to matter. And you can be the world's worst stock picker, but if you start with a bigger base, chances are, no matter how much you try to mess it up, you're still going to end up <laughs> somewhat um, in, in a better spot. And so that notion of access is very important, and particularly our work has found that if you can start to provide people with access and simple behavioral solutions, it starts to add up. And you know, one thing that um, if you kind of work its way all the way to the retirement area, you'll see that access to retirement plans and 401ks in particular is very, very binary. And if you work for small companies in particular, it is often the case that you don't have access to a 401k. So our, our data shows that um, I, I believe um, companies with 50 or fewer employees, uh, only about half of those companies actually provide their employees with access to 401k plans. You get up to 500 employees and almost 90% of those companies are providing access to a retirement plan. And so it's, it's not surprising too when you dig into the data that a lot of minorities tend to work for smaller companies as well because of some of the natures of the work that they are engaging in. And, 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 and so there's a lot of things that institutionally have worked against them historically that I think we have an opportunity to correct. Starsky, it looks like you want to jump in. <laughs> yeah, I just, I mean, the fact that we tie all of this, I mean, we, we've had this conversation about healthcare. Um, and so I think this is a great uh, moment in the context of recognizing all the things that, quite frankly, haven't worked for all of us. Um, since we see that this has created, um, the way we've been doing business has created inequities and disparities uh, in health, we've had that conversation tying health to the workplace, uh, tying care and provision of health to the workplace has not worked for our healing and our wellness. Uh, perhaps um, with the recognition that economic stability and mobility is also uh, connected to our health, we should interrogate whether we should be tying all the conversation about asset building, all the conversation about wealth to the workplaces in the same way, because we recognize that we have a structural disparity there. 
That means we need to start having serious dialogue about income and asset building strategies that are common to all people. Mm -hmm. It means we need to be talking about the fact that, you know, some, there are people who are descendant from people who had a 250 year head start on asset building on me. Now, I'm pretty quick. I'm not as fast as I used to be, but I don't know if I can run you down on 250 years worth of a head start without some supportive um, uh, engagement uh, from our governmental and our systemic structures. So we need to have a serious conversation about universal basic income in America. Yeah, I was, uh, and I was gonna say, can, yeah, go ahead. Can I jump in and, 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 and I work with the Aspen Institute, actually one of the things it shows is that it's actually health savings and education savings that can actually impede one's ability to grow emergency savings. And so when the mm -hmm. pandemic hit, particularly if you were in a situation where you had a smaller emergency savings plan, and again, not surprisingly, it was minorities um, who were more greatly exposed, and you had a higher preponderance of having a health issue, and again, if you look at the data, it tended to hit some communities way harder, yeah. you immediately had to dip into whatever savings you had, whereas some of the folks you referenced earlier who were able to stay home and save a little bit more uh, they didn't often need to dip into those savings accounts. And so that concept of saving and tying it to healthcare is a pretty important one in our country because healthcare often is the thing that gets in the way of lower-income folks and their ability to start that savings process. Yeah. But I also don't want to miss the wealth side, right? So in addition to yes, universal course. basic income, which, by the way, we figured out worked in the pandemic because everybody got a check, right? right. That was UBI. Uh, we, we've tried it. We've tested it outside of Stockton and other areas. Uh, but the other is uh, universal access to assets. And I want to talk about it as it relates to children. We need to talk about child savings accounts, child development, college savings accounts, child development accounts, um, and uh, baby bonds uh, as we talk about this uh, as a way to invest assets to begin the asset building conversation at birth for all children in America if we are serious about closing the racial wealth gap in America. If we're serious about sharing wealth, then we begin with basic asset building That's right. at birth. Can I ask who in the audience knows what baby bonds are? Okay, can we do a quick definition of baby bonds? Kanal, you wanna take that? Yeah, I'm happy to get into it. So, so just to oversimplify, the notion would be at birth, every child would essentially be granted a bond where the government would be making a contribution based on the family's income and that investment or that savings vehicle would then be invested and the child would get a payment uh, every year put into it and then be able to use that money once they were college age to either go ahead and go to college or for some other purpose. But the notion of a baby bond is that it starts to build savings for those who maybe don't have it with the government being the intervening party in that situation. I wanted to, I just wanted to jump in on some of the things that I've seen. Uh, I, you know, uh, what, what we looked at, I, I looked at the history of, basically I looked at the history of income um, dynamics um, going back to 19, the 1970s all the way to today. I then looked at the breakdown by demographics, black, white, Hispanic, uh, Asian uh, families as well. And one of the things that I found, we can, you know, it's good to think forward and find out what are the solutions uh, going forward, but what was, um, fascinating but also um, also very frustrating was that it seemed that 
we saw the gap between, um, basically, we saw, first of all, income, income inequality widen sharply since 1979. In fact, income inequality is now at the highest it has been going back that far. And according to the CBO, the, the Congressional Budget Office, um, it is projected to widen even further today in terms of uh, 2021. Uh, that, is by, that is when you look at it by the question of before tax, with transfers, and also after taxes. So in all, in all cases. Um, we also saw that there were significant changes. It kind of fits well, it kind of fits nicely with that. In 19, starting in 1980, when we looked at, um, looked at the balance sheets and also income of black families, and particularly uh, black women in particular, we focused, focused on, because Starsky had pointed out, is that when you look at, uh, when you look at household family, when you look at families, uh, a black child, uh, 50, I think it is 56% or over 50% of, of black children are, 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 would be in a, uh, a two-parent two household, as opposed to white, a white child, which is well over 80%. So the gap is really widened there. But we also saw in 1980 the widening sharply in terms of education, of uh, college degrees, black women versus white women, wage gap widened significantly, family income widened significantly, and the wealth gap widened significantly. So starting, I, I think one of the things that would be, I think, very helpful for, um, to, in order to, to, to uh, to address this is look at what the steps were. What were the, I guess you could say, policy issues or policy mistakes, if you uh, want to frame it that way, that were made further back in order to correct where we are today. Yeah. And, and I would say a couple. And I would also say is I'll add to the to the language policy choices. We have options uh, when we are um, determining who gains wealth and who doesn't, who accumulates, uh, whose wealth is protected, uh, whose is not. Uh, we make choices as it relates to these things. Uh, and I want to pivot as it relates to choice on something else you noted um, um, about family structure. Because this is one of the other things we talk about. It, in, it, it, it is one of the elephants in the room about uh, the conversations about the accumulation of wealth, earnings, and income. So I want to add another thing. I told you there are really smart black people. Um, there are really hardworking black people. Uh, you may know a few. Um, and there are different expressions and um, acculturations of family that work in different settings. And so often we begin to assess, you know, if there were two families in the home, policy choice in the 1970s, we begin to penalize black families living in public housing uh, for having a father in the home. Fathers make choices um, that if I can't earn more than the subsidy, then I'm not taking care of the children by being here. They leave public housing so that there can be actually more financial resources because we have so tethered the capacity to be a father with providing financial resources. We made a policy choice. The other is just, I'll say a more basic piece. Um, an, African, uh, an African cosmology uh, and African heritages that have informed uh, much of black culture in America are matrilineal and matriarchal. They don't circle around the men. We, we, we tried this Western male headship model. We, we taught it in church. It don't work for black people. Um, the black family is built around big mama. Uh, she is somebody's mother, uh, one of the parents' mother. Uh, and so when we begin to assess a nuclear family model and apply it on black people, it doesn't work. I'll prove it to you and then I'll be done. There has been one black person, one black man, to be the leader of the free world. 
he couldn't move into the White House unless Michelle's mama came too. <laughs> and so it's just important for us to say that there are things in the environment that impact how we're able to accumulate and grow and bloom uh, economically. And I think the best example I ever heard is if you have a garden and you have roses that are not blooming, you don't intervene on the rose. You begin to redevelop and to fertilize around it in the environment. And these are the kinds of, these are the places where we make policy choices. These were the, this is where institutions can do things differently in order to grow wealth in black families and close the wealth gap. That's a great analogy. Yeah. This podcast is supported by Verizon. Here's a trailer for a new podcast from Rose Stuckey Kirk, Verizon's chief CSR officer. The podcast is called On the Porch with Rose Stuckey Kirk. Stories connect us through generations. They bring us together and give us all a sense of belonging to a shared narrative. Some of those stories stick with us more than others. They guide and shape us while even helping us understand the world and each other. As important as the stories are, it's often just as important to acknowledge where you heard and shared those stories. The most important conversations rarely take place on a stage or in a lesson plan in school, but rather in a setting that feels familiar, even comfortable. The simplest of places, whether it's a balcony, deck, patio, stoop, or a porch. The great thing about the porch, or whatever represents a porch for you, is that it's a great place for intimate conversations and life lessons. Feel right at home on the porch with me, Rose Stuckey Kirk, wherever you may be. You'll hear conversations with prominent thought leaders sharing their views on everything from social justice to the economy and more. Sit back and relax. You're on the porch with Rose Stuckey Kirk. Stay a while. You can find and subscribe to On the Porch with Rose Stuckey Kirk on all major podcast streaming platforms, including Apple, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. I want to go back to kind of a buzzword that we have been talking about, um, ESG, not a buzzword, a buzz acronym. Um, Does everyone here know what ESG stands for? Can I get a show of hands? Okay, great. I mean, we're still going to do a definition of it. I just like the audience participation. So, <laughs> Beth Ann, can you explain what ESG is? And then I want to focus in a little bit on the S as it pertains to this conversation. Yes, ESG is environment, society, and governance. Uh, we, we all understand, in fact, invo- the, the E in ESG has gotten a significant amount of attention because climate, uh, the hurricanes, the tornadoes, the, you know, what we've seen, the damage that has been done to households, to people, to our, 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 our world is very well aware. Uh, governance, governance, we at S&P Global look at governance. That's one of our, it's part of our rating, uh, one of the factors in our ratings analysis. When we look at corporations, when we look at governments, for example, uh, the society part is what we're talking about here. Society in terms of income inequality, society based on diversity, the question of diversity, uh, diver- um, uh, gender issues as well. Many of those factors are really what we're talking about right now. Yeah. Kunal, we talked about this a little bit earlier. How does the society factor play into this gap when we're thinking in particular about assets and investments? Yeah. Let, let, let me take a step back because I, I think it's more than just a society factor in this context, which is... Um, 
if, if, if you look historically, including at Morningstar, if you look at our client base, what you tend to see a lot of is older individuals tend to be clients, tend to be involved in the markets. And something uh, rather interesting happened in the past 18 months. And I'm sure all of you have been paying attention to it. And, and what's interesting is suddenly a lot of young people became interested in the market. And you know, some are doing crazy things like AMC and Dogecoin and whatnot. Um, but most people, I always sort of think about it from the perspective that if people are starting to get involved and they've gotten the bug, that that's a good thing when you start talking about starting to build assets more broadly. And, and our data is showing that it tends to be uh, very, very broad um, among younger groups. And so going back to a point I had made earlier, which is that oftentimes people don't want to engage in the markets because it feels so distant to them. It doesn't feel like something that they understand, something that they can impact. ESG, and increasingly the S aspect of it, changes that. Because guess what? You can, in fact, start to have a voice. And so the promise that we see is this notion that ESG, for the first time, makes investing and savings inclusionary. And that's an important term, because I would say that historically, investing has taken an exclusionary approach. And a simple way of thinking about it is, if you were building a portfolio historically, and you went to somebody and said, I have certain preferences, the way they may have reflected those preferences is by excluding things that you objected to. Newer savers, newer investors, now have an opportunity to think about it differently, which is, I want to include the things that matter to me and reward those who are engaging in things that matter to me. And so by definition, they start to include things and basically increase the value of things that they believe are actually beneficial in the context of the E, the S, or the G, whichever one you want to point to. And I would say it's actually happening more on the E and the S right now. Um, most recently, you saw uh, just this example of this um, really small hedge fund that was able to force Exxon to appoint three directors because they were dissatisfied with the way Exxon was making policy choices as it pertained to climate change. And they had a small position, and yet they were able to pull this off. And I think you're going to start seeing that everywhere. And our data also just shows that companies that have been exceeding on the S have also, in the past three to five years, had outperformance in the public markets. And so there's a very clear link there. Yeah. And I think like that's sort of a, a prophecy that once people start to see success, they start to work on it. And so all of that is good. The one thing we are working on pretty diligently at Morningstar that's going to be important here is to have data that actually allows us to level set and use it to make those judgments. Because today, it's really easy to say you do A, B, or C because it's not standardized. But we need to have more standardized data there to be able to make the S judgments that you're talking about so fully. But it's a game changer yeah. from my perspective. Starsky, did you want to hop in? Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, this is one of the things that even before this moment, for the last 15 years in the world of philanthropy, so prior to coming to CDF, I led a local philanthropy in St. Louis. and. Um, Full disclosure, I chair the National Committee for Responsive Philanthropy. And we've been working to invite folks who are engaged in institutional 
uh, philanthropy to invest more, to use the impact investing strategies that were talked about yesterday, to be more thoughtful about the reflection of social good and those whom they invest in, look at the worker rights records of um, the companies uh, that uh, they're investing with. And part of that calculation is also uh, whether you're providing the kinds of supports that allow um, the, the workers who are working for, a particular working for a particular corporation to build assets for their families, right? So are you providing uh, access to child care to help to reduce costs is one thing, but also are you offering 403B, 401K uh, opportunities, and are you encouraging, do you have um, scales for people to vest in um, that are shorter, that actually reflect the periods that people will work for you? Um, not just kind of holding out a goal. Um, you know, you, you vest in seven years, well, your average worker works here for three years. Yeah, yeah. Um, that impacts. Um, and so thinking about that, uh, and then also very specifically in this conversation tethered to yesterday, uh, are you defining clearly the historically underrepresented and undercapitalized groups for which you are setting goals for minority management? I know you already are setting those goals, um, but we've got to be pretty specific about those as well. Um, you know, we were working with our uh, outsourced CIO and he came into one of our conversations with the foundation and was talking about the LLC that he and his wife run. He's based in Texas, my home state. Uh, and, uh, and he talked about how they made contracts with certain, uh, with state entities through the LLC that his wife leads in order to have access to MWBE. Well, the same thing is happening when a lot of us set minority manager goals in our investment portfolios in the interest uh, of, in, uh, of responding to these issues of wealth gaps and the like, but we don't monitor and we're not very specific about the language to say we really wanna focus on black, indigenous, Latinx as historically uh, undercapitalized groups, uh, we find ourselves with, um, with categories of folks that are still accumulating wealth in certain families and thus exacerbating the gap. Yeah. I have one final round robin question before we go to audience questions. So again, start thinking about your questions. I believe we have mic runners um, on either side. So if you have a question, just hold your hand up. Um, and if you are online, submit them. So one of the things that I used to find really difficult and frustrating when I was reporting on economics and the wealth gap in particular is that people can't think about investing, they can't think about stock picking, they can't think about saving, they can't think about any of those things when they are in survival mode when the only thing that they are doing is just trying to put food on the table, make sure they have diapers for their kids, and they know that if their car breaks down, they don't know what to do. They can't get to work. They can't get wherever they're going. So we've talked a little bit about UBI. We talked about baby bonds. But I guess it's a twofold question. Sorry, I'm, I always tell people not to do twofold questions, but I'm doing <laughs> it. My twofold round-robin question for each of you is, where are we as a society in getting people past that survival mode so they can actually think about investing and having assets? And two, what is the most critical step that we can provide to get people there? Um, Bethann, I'm I so start? sorry, I'm gonna start with uh, you. No, that's fine. Um, so, it, so where are we? I, I have to say that, look, um, the, for, where we are today um, for the, you know, we've all went through the pandemic. We know that many households, particularly people, um, households of color were hurt even harder by the pandemic. Why is that? It was because customer facing uh, service industry was crushed. And in, um, and the, the, a fair share, a large share of workers were black women or, 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 or women of color. Um, we did see, one of the things that we did find um, that was um, the support that was provided from the U.S. government was something that we believe was very instrumental to help um, cushion the blow for many of these households. Uh, however, um, 
now that we are coming out of the, uh, the economic uh, crises and we're going into recovery mode, we have to be well aware of where things stand for these, for these households, uh, as we, especially as we approach September. We're looking at the, we're, I, I know it's hard to imagine that, uh, especially because we're seeing, um, we're seeing businesses argue, say that we can't find the workers that we need, and certainly that is a concern. We do have what we're seeing is um, labor, labor market constraints. One of the reasons why is some say that um, the unemployment benefits might make people more reluctant to join. That could be one reason, certainly. However, there are many other factors that are at play here that do disproportionately affect those people who work in the service industry because they often don't have childcare. They often don't have some of the, uh, some of the savings that were taken to, into account, and many of those people are going to be women of color. Um, and so, so, we're seeing, we're, so we're seeing, and also you have a location factor as well. So when we look at the unemployment rate today, which has dropped significantly, it's, um, uh, it's, it's dropped significantly, I do also want to remind the audience that the unemployment rate, when you look at it by demographics, the unemployment rate for a black American is, I believe, at least 3% higher from that for a white American. And that's where we are today. And, in, and come September, a many, of the, many of the benefits that these black Americans have run out. So that, to me, says that there are still things to be, to be done. Yeah, I, I, to just give a quick answer, I, I think the first question we've all been talking about, which is we're worse off than we were at the start of the pandemic in terms of where things stand from an equity perspective, and there's a lot of work to be done to bridge that gap. There's multiple things that I think are important, but access to the right type of vehicles, I think, is really, really critical, whether you're talking about baby bonds, whether you're talking about health savings, whether you're talking about uh, getting going on just basic banking. Um, one of the most promising things I see, and we haven't really talked about this, is technology and the role technology can play. The reality is the access via a mobile device, as more people do begin to get familiar with them, is actually showing in our data that the number of um, households who are unbanked is dropping very fast. And I think that there's something to be learned from that, because um, it's not happening in pockets everywhere you're seeing that the number of un un unbanked populations is coming down materially because people are using technology to do that. And so I think the potential there can be pretty significant in terms of delivering some of the solutions we've yeah. been talking about. Yeah, and that's something we've seen success with in yes. other countries. Um, Darsky. Yes. Yeah, getting to survival mode and some of the questions we had before, if you want to help people right now where they are, we've done a very good thing uh, in um, expanding and adjusting the child uh, tax uh, credit um, to, to make it available to the 23 million poor families in America that didn't make enough money to get it before. Um, expanding that, that's been a good thing. Making sure that those are monthly disbursements um, so that starting July 15th or so, the Treasury and the IRS will be sharing that uh, with people uh, across the board so that families who have children under 18 will begin to get an allocation to care for those children in the context of the pandemic. These are things that will be helpful. And the fact that it's delivered monthly versus one time a year uh, when you uh, file your taxes uh, will help pay for those groceries, show up when the bills show up. That's a very critical thing, but it's only one year. So what can we do now to help people who are in survival, are in survival mode? Uh, we should appreciate the Biden administration's uh, proposal to extend it through 2025, and we should press in this moment, as we are at the Children's Defense Fund and a growing coalition called the Automatic Benefit for Children Coalition, to say that this should be permanent, uh, and to tell people that it's not rare. Um, other English-speaking developed nations, 
Canada, the UK, Australia, all have some form of family allowance um, that would operate in the way that the expanded child tax credit would if it were permanent. And it would affirm um, that wealth and worth go together. We care about the wealth of our children. We will honor them as worthy by investing in them permanently versus making a one-year intervention that could cut child poverty in half with the knowledge that we're going to have it to spike two years from now. So what is one thing we can do to help people survive now? We can advocate for making the, the adjustments to the child tax credit, which came in the American Rescue Plan, permanent. All right, we're gonna do some speed round questions. Are there any audience questions before I go to our friends online? Hi, thank you guys for the awesome session. Um, I know that for the ENESG, companies are required, publicly traded companies are required to report on this data now. Are there any requirements coming for the S of ESG? And are there any standardized reporting metrics to help companies report or indices, firms, consulting agencies that can help them report on the data, uh, essentially put a roadmap together to get to SDG compliance or the equivalent for social? Um, and if not, do you see that coming? All right. Yeah, I can take it quickly. Um, actually, even on the E so far, there are, and let me repeat the questions. It's basically on ESG if there's standardization of data and how that's going to play out. Um, actually, even on the E so far, it's not required. Uh, it's starting to be voluntary and, 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 and becoming something that more companies are reporting on. I think it's likely that in the next couple of years, it will become standardized. The Europeans will lead the charge in terms of what um, standardization looks like on the, e, the S and the G. And I think it'll settle at a much higher level than what is being reported uh, today. Um, by most companies. It's a tricky issue, though, and often in the eye of the beholder. An example I'll give you uh, really quickly since you talked about the E and the S is a company like Tesla, which a lot of people like to talk about and automatically assume that um, it's sort of the you know, best example of a, of a company that does everything right. We actually have it marked fairly highly on the E side, as you would expect, but pretty lowly on the S side because of violations it has in terms of how it's treating its workers, safety violations, and things like that. So. There's a lot to dig in there, and I, I think you are going to see standardization in the next few years. But it'll come out of Europe before um, I think it's accepted here. All right, we're going to hop to Beth, who asks, speaking of skill requirements, how about getting rid of generic college degree as a requirement? Can we change K through 12 education to be geared towards entry-level employment? Darcy, you look excited to answer that one. Yeah, this is the one. What does a college degree mean? Um, when a college degree in any discipline um, can make you qualify for a job. It means that uh, what you actually have learned is the capacity to navigate a system. You have exposure uh, to diverse perspectives uh, and you can set a goal over multiple years and accomplish it. That's the placeholder of a college degree. So why does a job description need to require that? Um, so someone with a, a degree in biology um, is in the same pool with someone with a degree in political science uh, for a job that's about social work. Um, these things just don't fit. Um, and so part of what, um, what the challenge is, and those, who, those of us who've been work, working in racial equity for a number of years, say, think a little harder about how, what the competencies and the characteristics are for the job and the person you want, 
and describe that in the job description and ask behavioral questions and experiential questions in the interviews so that people can show you or display and demonstrate how they meet those characteristics because the institutional marks are things that have historically locked out communities and we are still catching up in those regards. I wanted to uh, jump in really quickly here. Um, one of the reasons why we've noticed that there's been a huge, I mean, everybody, many have noticed that there's been a huge uh, kind of inflation, I guess you could say, on businesses requiring college degrees, uh, associate degrees, not necessarily four-year college degrees, but associate degrees or, or four-year college degrees for positions that normally had been something that a high school degree had um, uh, was merited. Uh, one big factor is there's no way to measure. Businesses have argued that there's no way to measure. And maybe this isn't the case, but uh, one factor is that businesses aren't able to measure the quality of the high school degree. So they say, well, I'll just go for this. And indeed, that's uh, where we are, where we are at today. So I do think that the question of P, uh, uh, K through 12 is a real issue going forward. All right, we are going to have to end it there. I know we could talk about this all day. Please join me in thanking our wonderful panel. Starsky Wilson is president and CEO of Children's Defense Fund. Previously, he was pastor of St. John's Church in St. Louis, which hosted the Black Lives Freedom Ride to Ferguson, Missouri. Beth Ann Bovino is the Chief U.S. Economist and Managing Director at S&P Global Rating Services. She develops the firm's economic forecasts. Kunal Kapoor is CEO of Morningstar Financial Services Company. Previously, he was the firm's president. Jillian White is Managing Editor at The Atlantic, where she oversees special projects, podcasts, and editorial Atlantic Live events. They spoke in June at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by the Aspen Ideas Festival team. Kitty Boone, Keelene Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Ava Hartman, Marcy Krivenin, Jonathan Melgard, Azalea Milan, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me. This podcast is supported by Verizon. Want to explore more big ideas? Join Verizon's Rose Stuckey Kirk in her new podcast, On the Porch with Rose Stuckey Kirk, for powerful conversations on life's biggest topics. The first episode tackles education equality with civil rights icon and activist Ruby Bridges. You can find and subscribe to On the Porch with Rose Stuckey Kirk on all major podcast streaming platforms, including Apple, Spotify, and iHeartRadio.